Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. To start off, we have our panel assembled to discuss the issues of interest and stories in the morning newspapers. It's a great pleasure to welcome the economist from UCC and the chair of the Fiscal Advisory Council. Are you Professor Seamus Coffey or just a a bog-standard doctor, are you? Just a lecturer. 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 Good morning to you and I assume as a good Corkman you'll be going to the match. I'm heading for Crow Park. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, And uh, two people are not in us. I wanted one token socialist. They're all in the south of France uh, the week that's in it so instead we have two journals who know all about what's happening it's a great pleasure to welcome again Dirva MacDonald uh, who of course is the uh, former legal editor but now the group business editor at INM and the author of Bust How the Courts Have Exposed the Rotten Heart of the Irish Economy and we're bringing a little bit of civilization. Fiek Kelly is here <laughs> to give us the, an insight into what's happening uh, he of the Irish Times uh, as Paul Corr uh, for that paper let me tell you what's on the front pages of the newspapers. Uh, the Sunday Business Post goes with Lost Generation. Uh, they have an interview with the uh, housing agency boss, uh, the usual stuff there in terms of what they're doing. Um, but uh, homelessness obviously is centre. And Michael McDougall, an interesting piece on the tipping intergenerational point between young and old. The Brits are going to publish some detailed Brexit proposals this week, including on the board of the Sunday Independent and the Mail on Sunday continue with the coverage of the murder of James Corbett. For Fury at Martin's US TV Smears is the Sindo lead. Killer's family claim Brick was for Children's Art Project. The Mail on Sunday's take on is a photograph of the two twins, Jason Corbett and his brother in the US. The last time I saw my twin Jason alive. The Sunday Times goes with a story from the former executive director of Glen, who accuses, the, the gay rights charity accuses, the HSE of institutional homophobia. Um, uh, that interview on the front page and I was at the RDS last night and there's a wonderful photo of a horse jumping seven foot two and a half inches it really is quite a sight climbing all the way up and then all the way down again much higher than the ears of the horse well you've heard who our panel are I want to start with you Seamus in terms of okay winter and work are around the corner uh, and we're going to be focusing on the budget on the 10th of October uh, and all that good stuff I'm reading that you're saying as chairman of the Fiscal Advisory Council that actually for four years in a row we've the fastest growing economy in Europe. Everything seems to be a cloudless sky. Is this true? Well, there's no doubt that the economic environment has changed and is far more positive. Like the economy went into free fall in 2007, 2008, but 2011 it began to bottom out. In 2012 it has recovered and recovered quite rapidly. Yes, we have massive problems in terms of measuring the Irish economy, but I suppose the, the best measure we have is just the number of people in employment. And that's been going strongly for the last three, four years. Uh, in fact, full-time employment is now growing faster than any time since 1999. It grew by 6-7% in the last 12 months. Uh, so there's no doubt that, that everything in terms of the direction is going in, in a positive way, uh, that things have turned around, have turned around more rapidly than, than maybe anyone could have predicted. And like when you're looking at the overall picture, you have to say it's very positive. So therefore, what does that tell you about what we should do in Budget 18? 
Well, it, it's, it suggests and indicates that the economy doesn't need a fiscal stimulus in the sense of it doesn't need the government pumping money into an economy that's already performing quite well. That's one of the problems we had back in the, in the days leading up to 2007, 2008, that the private sector, the, the property sector, individual households were borrowing money, pumping that into the economy. But the government was, in a sense, accentuating that by pushing more money out itself with its tax cuts and its spending increases, uh, be it across a broad range of areas. If we want to take a, sort of an, a management perspective of the economy... It doesn't need fiscal stimulus. It doesn't need uh, excessive tax cuts or excessive increases in spending. What does it need? Does it need a rainy day fund? Does it need a balanced budget? What does it need? I think a balanced budget would be appropriate. A rainy day fund is sort of a, a nice thing to, to discuss, but I'm not sure it has any real impact. Like, I think what we need to do is look at getting our, our sort of our accounts right on a day-to-day basis, moving to a balanced budget. We said the economy crashed in 2007. The deficit opened in 2008. There's still a deficit there this year. Um, so eight, nine, ten years later, we're still borrowing money um, to run the country. Up. And what's the truth about the national debt? I pick up one uh, thing and it says national debt now is down to a GDP ratio of 74%. And then I meet people who aren't as excited about this leprechaun economics, are not into aircraft leasing statistics being sent to the economy, say our actual debt ratio is 120% because a lot of that GDP is false. Um, What's the truth about that? Yeah, I think there is a certain element that, like you mentioned, that that the measurement problems in the Irish economy. Like, one thing you want to know about debt is can you service it? Can you repay it? And how you repay debt is from your income. Um, And you have various different ways of measuring income. And as you say, like, we have this international measure of GDP that all countries use uh, as a measure of the output, what you produce in your economy. But of course, in Ireland, these things are hugely distorted by the presence of multinationals, the airline industry, pharmaceuticals, uh, and a whole range of foreign companies that operate here. Yeah, Mother Tree and Tala doesn't encounter those very much. they're in our national statistics, so they have no impact on our ability to repay our debt. So in a sense, they should be discarded. And that's why you get a range of figures. Somebody saying that 76% includes everything that happens in Ireland, where somebody that's saying it's over 100% is probably looking at how much do we earn, what money is actually left in the Irish economy after you take all that out. So like, I think that the figure is probably somewhere within that range. It is coming put, down... Put a figure on it. What is our actual It's probably debt? around 100, 105% of national income. Which is high. It, it is quite high, yes. It would be above the, the Eurozone average. It's not in the danger zone. If we were at the 120% figure, which you suggested, we would be still in a danger zone. But it is coming down coming down relatively slowly because we're still running a deficit. So the government is still borrowing money. Uh, but because the economy is growing, because our income is growing, what we might say our debt dynamics, if you look at the stock of debt we have and our flow of income, that is improving. It still is quite like, in money terms, the debt is $200 billion, And it's still there. And it's a massive debt, a legacy of the, cr- the crash. But because the economy is growing, uh, our ability to service that debt is improving. And, of course, we have some artificial benefits from the ECB with extraordinarily low interest rates. So, like, the government isn't repaying the debt. They're just paying the interest every year. But as more of that debt is rolled over at these extraordinarily low interest rates, our debt bill is falling. Back around 2010, when we were planning our national recovery and whether we could get out of the crash, it was felt that by about now, we'd be spending €12 billion Euro a year uh, on national national debt interest. So a huge portion of our income would have gone to repay or to pay the interest in that debt. If you look at the figure now, it's about six billion. So one is the debt didn't rise as high as it was believed, but the key driver is that interest rates are now far, far lower. Uh, so even though six and that billion, could alter. It, it could change. And that is a risk that we face that, that once interest rates start to rise, that 200 billion debt is still there and you start putting higher interest rates on that, more of our income will go to service that okay. debt. F- if that is the independent macroeconomic picture, which seems pretty rosy, uh, relative to where we came from. Uh, the growth seems uh, set fair, according to Seamus. 
what, you know, Leo has an election to win, uh, a lot of competing demands. Uh, what, what's your sense of the political response to that kind of set fair prognosis? Interestingly that Seamus said, you know, we should have a, a, a balanced budget, we shouldn't really do much, We're, the economy is growing fast enough, but that, that question is repeatedly put to people like Pascal and Leo Frecker, you know, you don't need to do any more guys so why don't you just stand still for a while? And the answer is always, well people need to feel something back, they need to feel that recovery is benefiting them, therefore we're going to cut their tax, we're going to increase spending by as much as we can. Now they're constrained in doing that in this particular budget because of the fiscal rules which say we have about 1.2 billion to spend That'll fall because a lot of that money is going towards public sector pay deal. But we're anticipating be around kind of when they make a bit of wriggle room, possibly eight hundred fifty to a billion euro, and that's all going to be to give away. To give away as such as it is, but that is all going to be given away. And but you while, wouldn't call that an election. budget? I wouldn't call that an election budget. No, because there's very little to give away. It's in the same territory as last year's budget, which was kind of a fiver for the pensioners, we're not quite sure they'll even get that now. A uh, small cut to the USC, little kind of nips and tucks around the area. I think what it will be used to do is to give expression to Leo Varadkar's I am for the middle classes, for the people who get up early in the morning. So it'd be interesting how he crafts that budget. But the budget we're looking at as the real election budget is the budget after this one, which is November 20, October 2018. So I think, although people like Seamus say, you know, hold your horses there, lads, the politicians always like to be seen to be giving the public something. And, and it's a confidence and su- supply arrangement. Terrible. So he, yeah, it's a confidence supply arrangement. So he can't really put his own stamp on the budget just yet because he's going to be relying on Fianna Fáil uh, to do it. It's really interesting looking at the theme across all of these papers, which uh, good body stockbrokers might be able to claim credit for. Because last Sunday on a bank holiday weekend, they, they issued a report talking about how Ireland's lost decade um, was over. And um, it's really interesting. Cause it's not just in Ireland, but in the UK and around the world, we've been reflecting because it is ten years. You know, everybody has the point at which um, the crash uh, happened in, in their head or, or in reality. But it's widely believed that it was when BNP Parry by the French bank withdrew from hedge funds that specialised in, in certain mortgage debt that, that a year later triggered the collapse of Lehman. Um, that, that really, that was the point um, and time. And so there's a lot of reflection um, in our uh, media coverage all week and in today and asking whether or not there's been a lost decade and whether there's been a lost opportunity. And I think it's that in which people are framing, well, what is the government going to do mm. next? Because the macroeconomic picture, and this is where Fine Gael went wrong last year with its keep the recovery going because a chorus went up afterwards which said what recovery or what recovery for me because there is a gulf between the macroeconomic picture which is very very good we had 4% unemployment that shot up to 15% that has collapsed uh, now down to nearly 6% since by any measure that is extraordinary you're looking at all of the big macro um, economic um, uh, progress and the economy but it's when you look when you drill down and a lot of people Dan O'Brien um, in the Sunday Independent uh, Michael McDowell on the back page of the um, uh, the Sunday Business Post but actually the one that I've kind of been looking at is uh, Stephen Kinsler also in the Sunday Business Post where he talks about that gulf between the macroeconomic picture and the microeconomic picture and what people are saying about the, com- the economy and what people are feeling about it. So if people don't feel and, and he's pointing to and others to an intergenerational gap the younger generational uh, generation not feeling it particularly in terms of challenging around housing and the housing crisis is more than the homelessness crisis which along with suicide is one of the biggest, biggest unforgivable marks okay, of the last decade. We, we will have a look back in detail at this so-called lost generation. But it, and it's that this, gap, but, but, the macroeconomic... No, sorry, hold on a second now. All this cloudless sky, I want to urinate in all this and say that <laughs> this reminds me, this reminds me of an ESRI. We're going to have 10 years of 8% growth. There isn't mm. a problem on the horizon. I picked up 
not just to read my own column on the Saturday's Irish Independent, but I read a story mm. business page. Parity between Euro and mm. Sterling by the end of the year, say Morgan Stanley Bank. And I'm saying, oh my God. Seamus in when you get down from your ivory tower in UCC, <laughs> right? I'm talking about mushrooms. I'm talking about used imported cars and thousands of jobs being lost in the motor industry here. At 88 pence, they've gone from 76 pence sterling to the euro. People tell me that the roof will fall in at parity. The notion that we can compete with food, drinks, other indigenous industries into the UK, 50 billion a year trade. Is there not an element to which people in the real economy that I speak to and people in the kind of pseudo-CSO-ESRI economy are actually st- completely on different hymn sheets. Yeah, look, there's no doubt if the, the, the exchange was to move to parity, it would be a, mm. a huge negative for the Irish economy. You'd see queues of cars uh, up to Newry again. In relation to the sort of the linkages between the, the macro stats and, and the, the real lives of individuals, like if you take the, 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 the country as a whole, we have about 3.5, 3.6 million adults. Like when we talk about a recovery, and um, we're talking about a, a large increase in employment, we're talking about an increase in employment of maybe 200, 220,000. Mm. That's about 6% of the adult mm. population. Mm. So if you survey people and said, are you feeling the recovery? Well, 6% have had a massive impact because they got back they into employment. they could be yellow-packed part-time jobs in McDonald's. They're, they're not. Like the, the incomes are rising in aggregate terms because of these people coming back into work. We're seeing it in the, the income tax figures. We're seeing it in the PRSI figures. They're all rising 7-8% per annum. So there are people feeling the recovery. But of the entire population, they are a small subset. The issue with the crash was those who felt it most were clearly those who lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods, lost their business. But everybody felt it in terms of reductions in, in public sector pay, uh, increases in taxation and reductions in social welfare. So the crash was felt by everybody. Now that we're on the way up, we still don't have the resources to take all those no, things back. Sorry, but those po- who are feeling it are those who are back sorry, into employment. So to say that the recovery isn't widespread no, is probably oh, no, true. Sorry, my point is a different point, which is that no one knows how impactful the damage of Brexit could well, be just on the trade it's side irrespective of whether we have any well, EFTA or whatever you mentioned mushrooms because mushrooms <laughs> were the first canary in the coal mine um, mm. on Brexit because immediately in the wake of Brexit the sectors that um, that hadn't hedged or perhaps hadn't been prepared for the result that, that some um, that many uh, didn't expect there are going to be particular sectors like mushroom, like dairy, um, some agriculture sectors that will see a much, much bigger impact than other sectors which will be able um, to adjust. And I'm from Newry. We, we welcome many people driving up uh, to, to see us. But when you look at that, particularly cross-border uh, businesses, particularly in agriculture, you know, they're, they're going to see huge movement there. And there's no doubt if there is parity, that is going to be calamitous for some sectors but not for all. And the other thing is that it could further accentuate this discrepancy you have mm-hmm. between the people who feel the recovery and who don't because you know we're often hearing you know certain banks might relocate to Dublin we're hearing bids for EBA mm. EMA who would necessarily be based on Dublin We're not going to get either. We're not going to get either but Dublin perhaps will not be as affected by Brexit as businesses in rural Ireland people who are you know used car seller people who are mushrooms people who are on the food supply chain taking their, their goods from north and south they will be damaged more in the event of Brexit being catastrophic which it looks like it will be We see another sector now that again you mightn't see in the ivory tower is tourism we've learned already from the first six months of this year first of all a decline in the headcount of Brits coming here those that are coming here are spending 8% less staying shorter staying in cheaper accommodation but even worse the Chinese the Asian the continental mm. viewers, uh, visitors 
you know what, we'll go to Scotland, we won't go to Ireland, we'll go to the UK because it's 14% cheaper. Put that on steroids, make a 25% differential from where it was a year ago. That is the real economy, that's real job, 400,000 people in the hospitality sector. The the influx from North America um, has really kind of skewed the tourism figures because obviously we've seen a huge boost there. Um, We're actually reporting today that the the prospect long uh, spoken of of uh, the Dublin-Beijing-Edinburgh flight is is now actually uh, quite close, so we would hope that that would increase that kind of um, Asian traffic. But there's no doubt that when you looked at the recent tourism figures, it was the change in the the, mm. the tourism and the travel. And, and Brits account for forty percent yeah, of yeah. our tourism. I was struck by the tourism figures that came out in the last week or so, mm-hmm. where tourism was saying, you know, things are good, you know, we are having a record year. But then they had that chink, as you speak mm-hmm. about, about the decline in British. Uh, visitors and I was myself on holidays in recent weeks in West Cork and Waterford and Wexford I know anecdotally going to a restaurant or a bar and you ask the person working, how are things this yeah. year and they all said things this year were worse than they were last year so I was struck by the fact that on you know t- speaking to people who are in the trade every day they were saying things aren't good this year and they were hearing the overall view which is mm. actually things are better there you go Seamus the real world well, if you add up the people who are coming into the country, the number of people coming into the country has increased. Yes, mm. it's down in terms of UK visitors, primarily driven by exchange rates, as you said. Like, no, it's, it's going to get worse, it's, is my point. Uh, well, if Morgan Stanley could predict exchange rates, I think there'd be no risk <laughs> of them going bust. So they might make a, a suggestion. Oh, sorry, that to, they're not like academic economists. They've got to put their butt on the line because they're telling investors what to do and they're taking mm. positions. And if they are, fair enough, but they're not going to be 100% accurate in terms of predicting exchange rates. But when it comes to the overall tourism numbers, um, we're seeing an increase. Yes, it's done from the UK, but from mainland Europe, from the US, things are increasing. And when it comes to those sectors of the economy, which we think we might be ex- impacted by Brexit uh, in the agri-food and agricultural sector, like if you talk to those in the dairy sector about the price of milk, they're all very happy at the moment uh, getting mm. 34 pence a litre uh, compared to the, the mid-20s that we're getting 12 months ago. So even though there might be issues in the exchange rate in terms of the euros they're feeling in their pockets, <laughs> they're quite happy at the there is one thing uh, you were saying that the budget will be a fiver mm-hmm. and it'll be pretty nondescript you, are, you, you, you think though there will be a big day out on the capital spending side yeah I think that's the, that is the big thing that people around government are flagging as the big event in the second half this year we will have a 10 year capital spending plan shaped around this Ireland 2040 plan this is you know this spatial strategy about where we allocate resources where we spend our money but is this a microwave reheat of what we heard already not about Lewis and Rhodes. Well, what we heard was five years up to twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. As far as now, they're now going to go five years beyond that with more money. So this has very much been cast as Veradker's pitch to Ireland. This is where he sees the country going. I think that's going to be the big political set piece in the second half of this year, rather than the budget, which by necessity will be quite incremental in the way it's. And, shaped. and is that mostly PR, or do you think it's real? I think it will have to be real because, as you say, if they suddenly say, oh, actually, we're going to speed up the construction of Metro North by six months to a year and we're going to speed up the construction of the Lewis Cross City, which is already on the way, excuse me. But it'll have to be real. It'll have to announce new plans, new kind of infrastructural spending. But the key is whether it's infrastructural development that is needed rather than kind of white elephants that are not needed and won't be used. My Yates on Sunday panellists are Seamus Coffey of UCC and the Fiscal Advisory Council, Dervin MacDonald, business ed- Group Business Editor at INM, and Fia Kelly, political correspondent with the Irish Times. Now, you alluded to this, Derville, uh, that eureka moment for good bodies, they said we had a lost decade, and Stephen Kinsley gets a couple of pages out of the lost generation. Mm-hmm. I... I flip at all of this because 
the situation was in January 07 a banker sat me down and sat me down and he said between your business and your property mm-hmm. you're worth 50 million it ended up that I was worth nothing on the 31st of August 2012 everything that I'd worked for 30 years and there are so many people in their 50s now who are absolutely creamed by the recession and now we're treating it like some academic sort of historical exercise that should be referred to Dermot Ferriter like this this is part of our DNA these are this has been very real I mean like you know, do you understand my point? This was such seismic. This is on a scale. What happened in 2010 with the 1930s, in my view. It's once in a century crash. Yeah, and, and, and it feels warlike. And I'd say that for every cohort, um, your generation was particularly bad hit. Um, my generation was too. Um, fake, who uh, uh, was my little uh, trainee who I mentored Don't make me feel in the too Irish old Independent uh, many years <laughs> ago. It's a different story for um, his generation. One of the things that we didn't do, thankfully, um, during the worst years of the crisis was turn it into an intergenerational warfare. Um, and I hope that we don't start doing that now. But there's no doubt. Like, I mean, it's interesting across all the coverage, this reflecting on the 10 years that um, the different newspapers are calling, well, what's going to be the enduring legacy? So the Sunday Independent, which says there are great reasons to be optimistic in its editorial says in years to come the shocking rate of suicide in this period will turn out to be the enduring legacy of the Great Recession um, Michael McDowell uh, takes um, I suppose he is hinging it all on housing which he says is bigger than just homelessness um, Stephen Kinsella in his piece um, says the you know he doesn't dispute the macroeconomic good news he said it's undeniable he says the Irish economy is not growing for everyone the Ireland of the microeconomic statistics he says is still suffering and he takes a couple of um, indicators so he looks at domestic demand he looks at the government debt Deficit. He looks at change in waiting times um, for people in hospitals. He looks at the unemployment rate and in particular at youth unemployment. But the one I suppose that really he hones in on is the, the numbers in homeless accommodation. And it will be quite, it is actually quite shocking given our macroeconomic um, dynamics that there are little kids of four years old and younger who have known nothing but homeless accommodation for whom one of the indicators of life is not so bad is that they get to sit down and eat at a table instead of standing up. So there's a lot of kind of reflection um, on that and actually and it was what I was speaking about earlier that gap between the macroeconomic and the microeconomic and where you have those gulfs just just to speak to uh, Fake's point on the political that is where political dissent and anger grows and it fills that vacuum. So I think that you know there are different measures by which you can say look I mean to be honest there were people five or six years ago at the height of the crisis who were saying we need to make this investment now to avoid like imagine like I still can't get my head around and I covered repossessions for many years and I'm now in the business sphere I still can't quite get my head conceptually around how we came out of a housing boom and bust cycle into a homelessness and housing kind of crisis you know it's just you know I understand the technical reasons but I can't at a human level and the point I suppose that Stephen Kinsella and others are, are talking about is that if it doesn't feel real if this recovery um, doesn't feel real that's where it comes in and I think that the different generations will have their different complaints if anything arguably the pensioners were most protected um, in this and, and there'll be a flurry of um, anger coming at me for even just saying that but if you think of you know my generation that um, their starter home was an apartment who now can't get out of it they're growing their families um, and can't move on if you look at uh, people of um, Fake's generation and younger who cannot get um, on the property ladder I think you and Fake were the same generation oh, Thank you very much <laughs> Thank you very, very much I thought he was very young <laughs> but, you know, but, but, but each generation and each cohort will have suffered it in a different um, in a different way and we might all be okay. feeling our generation was worse affected Okay I ju- just Seamus like Economics moves in cycles. The 50s, the 80s, uh, the oil crisis, the dot-com recession. 
What is the lasting legacy of this particular 2010-28 recession? I suppose what, what makes this recession different from our perspective is that the scale of debt that we mm. entered into it with um, the build up of public debt through the government but I suppose the, the large amount of private okay. sector debt we brought into mm. it and banking debt working well and the people who borrowed mm. the money from the yeah, banks okay. uh, be it households or, or businesses uh, and those involved in commercial activities that if, if you compare uh, back to the, the, the cycles you referred to previously um, they all tended to be sort of more cyclical more down to, to jobs etc whereas this had the, the job losses but primarily it was driven by changing mm in debt dynamics that the economy was pumped up hugely by uh, increased borrowing up to 2007. Well, what's the legacy of it in 2017? Well, trying to work we're st- 2017 mm. and we're still trying to work through large part of that debt that remains. Non-performing um, loans? Mm. That, that, that It's incredible that 10 years later uh, we still haven't solved that problem that we still have. Of course you want more evictions don't you? You want more repossessions. Well at the, at the moment 10 years into we've had very very few. We've had lots of stories since 2010 that a tsunami of repossessions is on the way and it's been said every year 2011 will be the tsunami. I was the first 20- person to use that in 2007, warning that there would be a tsunami of repossessions. I was the first generous. Gen- well, but not, you're saying yeah. it hasn't happened, well, it Absolutely hasn't, hasn't happened. There, there um, have been, we were actually just chatting about this earlier. Um, I covered that court for, for many, many years, and I was one of the first uh, out warning that there would be a tsunami of repossessions based on what I was seeing in 07 and 08 and the cases coming through. But in fact, what happened, and I covered that court for many years until I swapped roles um, last year. But what actually happened, if there was any any hint of a level of engagement, the court stalled or nearly kind of stopped the process. But what you would find in that court was that there were families, homeowners, um, sometimes sole owners, who had not paid a mortgage payment in five or six years. Now, that was not a resolution for the homeowners. It was certainly not a resolution for the banks and certainly not a resolution for the country as the, the guarantors um, of the debt of those banks. So there was a problem then that we have not dealt with non-performing loans. Mm. And because the domestic ha- banks don't want to get their hands but, grubby, but James, they've what, outsourced it to... Why is this important? Non- I mean, surely... Well, we're talking about housing. Like One yeah. issue is that we have houses that are vacant that are working through our repossession courts at an extraordinarily slow rate. Uh, people have either left the property, there's been maybe marital breakdowns or some people have immigrated. They can't be you go into the court and I, I have attended the repossession courts for a year like one thing that happens in a lot of cases is that the borrowers can't be served they can't be found um, they're so going what's to the actually prop- happening on the ground? They're deferred the, the cases are deferred it's But you're saying the people have vacated? The, the, yeah. the property is vacated mm. like okay some of them have now worked through and they've, they've done uh, service by and what post, are you talking post, about? 20,000? 10,000? In terms of vacant properties yeah, I think all of that area of uh, repossessions sort of uh, uh, the repossessions that have happened. That, no, they're in the system that haven't happened. Oh, there's probably maybe fourteen or fifteen thousand cases in the system, mm. but like very few of those are ending up with actually repossession mm. orders being granted. And even when orders are being granted, they're not actually following through until the, of the repossession actually being granted. That's so not pro eviction. That is just there is a problem with dealing with non-performing loans that the government and the banks have not yet confronted and that also serves as a drag and if you look at consistently people are just warning well look you know when it comes to the main banks it's that portion it's the non-performing loans what are we going to do the solutions aren't easy and nobody Mm. is arguing for evictions but at the same time if you're in the private rented sector if you haven't paid your rent for four weeks there is a solution that you may not like but Mm. that has happened and yet we have people I remember in one case case I covered there'd be no payment in almost eight years and still not a repossession order granted like the central bank produced statistics on arrears in Ireland and they go up to arrears of two years or more uh, and you try to make a comparison across other countries they don't publish that, those numbers but the, the central bank's category of two years or more 
is actually quite useless. We actually need another category and see how many people are four years or more in arrears. That of those that have gone into real okay. long-term arrears, if, if, if how many have gone okay, more than four years in arrears? It seems from this discussion, the biggest legacy of the crash is the impact on housing vis-a-vis this whole repossession story the lack of supply maybe the builders were smashed uh, the rocketing rents taking up to a third of people's Mm -hmm. incomes Okay, I read in today's papers new minister for housing uh, yet another one Owen Murphy this time he's going to have a summit mm. God help us uh, and you know the, what, what, what are the government going to I do like about the, housing yeah, as opposed of, to talk about I saw that stuff about you know a summit and bringing people and banging their heads together the county managers but the county managers are in with Owen Murphy and the Minister for Housing on a regular basis they're in nearly weekly and monthly talking to him about this is how things are going in fact I actually think that Simon Coveney was previously told by those officials this targets you have for getting rid of homelessness it's not going to work so get rid of it but he didn't listen to them as far as I told what we're looking at now is there is going to be a, a relaunch again of rebuilding Ireland which is the government well let's talk about the substance are substance we talking about a CPO we're talking no, about I think a tax on vacant I, what are we talking about I think about? The f- what we're looking at is a tax on vacant homes which is this idea perhaps that but I thought that was already coming in in January 119 no, I think that's, that's a tax sites. for a land. Sites. That's a, okay. a tax for those who are hoarding land, and that there is a kind whereas, of a sunset clause. Whereas this would be, say, if you are recording of having a vacant property and you pay X amount of property tax on that, we will then double or perhaps even more increase your property tax to encourage you to put that property Jeez. back on the market and put it to you. So that's one aspect we understand they're looking at. There is talk in recent days, and now Michael McDowell is mentioning again in his piece about increased use of CPOs. Um, that would be they don't extreme. have a great history. <laughs> they don't have a great history, and for a Fine Gael government, well, well, I could not see that happening. Well, sir, we had Peter McVerry on the program, and he mm. said, and you know, he's given mm. a lifetime to this issue. He said that is the most important issue, and I thought reading McDowell's piece, mm. the legal advice was. If you write a market-based check, mm. you can do the CPOs. Like, we do CPOs for roads. Mm. Yep. Why not do it for a cri- homelessness? It, there is an argument for it, but I just think with a Fine Gael government in office, and I was listening to a couple of their TDs out on the airways in the last few days, when they were asked that question, you know, Peter McFerry mm. says, why don't you suppose they initially went, no, 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 property rights, we can't interfere with that. But there is an argument, I suppose. You well, can't turn that. Created NAMA. They we did, did but the <laughs> other thing that, that they did do, and which would give you some degree of hope if they were to go down that road, is that... Initially last year when they brought in the rent caps, again, would seem to be an absolute alien concept to a Fine led But government. it hasn't seemed to work. Because no. you know what's happened? They've actually broken tenancies. It's mm. actually undermined well, the, security the, the, of the, people. The, 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 the ministers and the, depart- and the department seem to be that that actually has worked. That that is something that is not under consideration for change in this new but, but plan. But look at awkward only least reviews. Look at all of these measures. That's mostly commercial property, yes, isn't but it? but there is a mythical... Um, thing about property rights um, partly because it's embedded in our constitution embedded mm. in our mindset that this is like one of the, the sacred cows that you cannot might touch. be embedded in the courts yeah and mm. and the, the, but there is this sort of kind of mythical thing that is developed around um, property rights because it is uh, you know because it's, it's protected in the constitution a lot of this comes down to political will in mm. my view you know we nationalised our banks overnight we're not uh, we're not incapable what, what of taking major like decisions what would you like to see well, Owen Murphy standing up and saying he's going to do well, look, well you know when you're talking about, look, I mean, we have a piece just on, on the vacant site levy uh, in today's uh, Sunday Independent business section and the money that will return to the state. But that's not going to come in effect until January 19. Mm. You know, so everything, you and know, th- th- there's all these sacred cows in terms of property that we're afraid to touch. So I think it's going to take real courage. Look, I mean, the CPO route will probably tie 
the courts it's not a quick fix it's not a quick fix and I think that you know you need but it, it's it's actually and it's you know it's the lack of joined up thinking all over it you know, you know, all over the entire kind of piece you know because local authorities saying well you should just give up you know those sites and that would encourage because we, we need particularly in Dublin it is not a bit more big sprawling there, there sites is, on is, the outside it's like actually the, in, in the city that we need it I know people are talking about a lot more direct build big, you know, yeah. we, we need money to build houses mm. immediately and I think that the one thing that we will be worth watching in the next couple of weeks is that when Leo Varadkar the day he assumed the office of Taoiseach he stood in the, in the doll and made his speech mm. and he gave a very firm indication that his government would go down that route uh, more firmly than the Kenny's that they would direct build social housing and housing that was mm. needed so that will be the key issue and I think that there is a problem as Derville says we've often you've touched on it yourself Ivan that the speed at which uh, you talk to people in construction you know, they would actually say you know drop regu- regulations we need less regulation but the speed at which the houses are being built doesn't give you a degree of confidence every mm. every policy measure the government has taken controversial policy measure the rent caps the help the boys scheme the vacant site levy, it's all sunset clause to 2019 mm-hmm. or 2018. And it looks like it hasn't made a whit of a difference because we're getting ever closer to those deadlines and houses aren't being built. Within that, I want to focus with you, Seamus, in terms of the traditional council houses, this direct social housing provision, which it seems to me, the state of the land, they simply just have to put it out to tender and write a cheque. Is this something you think is the right way to go in terms of economics, um, you know, just to build the houses because they have moved in a different direction, you know, which is to get the private sector and we'll give you rent subsidies. Like the housing market isn't isn't a single market. There are lots mm. of different elements to it. Like you need uh, properties for people to buy, properties for people to rent and social provision. Uh, and at present, uh, all of those markets are failing and we're leaving with an overall problem. I think some of the, the activity that's taking place isn't necessarily designed to achieve anything like in relation to, to vacant properties. Like I don't think Dublin has a problem with vacant properties. Like, the vacant properties are likely in, in counties Cavan, Leitrim, Roscommon, etc. who are probably crying out for people to move. I'm sure the, the county councils there would be glad well, to bring people in. Do you think regional planning is part of this? Well, like the, well the, because the, there's no jobs there for them to go mm-hmm. to. People want to go where the jobs are. Social housing is done on a... Uh, local authority basis mm. so like people are, are looking for properties uh, in particular local authorities um, and if the choice is uh, not having houses available at all or having houses available I think uh, a broader view would say that having housing available would be a preferable option rather than not having them available mm. uh, f- like living in, in uh, emergency accommodation but when it comes to actually provision What's I think happening? there will be a pickup in, in public building of, of houses it, it isn't going to happen overnight the, that the sites mm. are available but, uh, could, but if you look at what the government have, billion being spent in that direction or like over a, a long period of time over six, seven, eight years you like to see it. like Ireland does spend a lot of money in housing if you compare us across uh, European countries we do actually spend much more than most other countries but a lot of it goes on current spending mm. uh, providing accommodation subsidising rent uh, paying mm. rent uh, in the private market uh, when it comes to actually building we're probably below uh, what yeah. happens in other countries and that's one thing they do plan to pick up it doesn't happen overnight we may be having a different conversation in 2021-2022 but if you think back to 2010-2011 like nobody was saying that Ireland was going to have a shortage of housing we were talking mm. about hundreds of thousands of people unemployed or emigrating goes to states goes to states which actually turned mm. out to be an over 
estimation as the CSO have done the census they actually said that the numbers of people they thought were leaving the country didn't happen at all anyway we're talking about knocking houses um, so like policy response to what's been said at the moment has been said we need to build more housing I think that will happen so maybe it'll be a different conversation in 2021 when they are building them and it's not just about you know putting look, I mean, a lot of people don't move, want to move to areas where that are remote and actually don't have the proper amenities in terms of schools roads functions and other things but uh, Seamus just touched on something which is really interesting in terms of regional planning like Ireland is is quite unique amongst its peers in that so much of our GDP is concentrated in Dublin and the Dublin metropolitan area like I mean way way bigger than London or Paris so so much is concentrated in and around Dublin and there you know there's probably a, a bigger debate around regional planning and actually uh, building it out but like I mean the, you know e- even if you're homeless or you're, or you're at risk of that you know the prospect maybe of moving to Cavan or somewhere remote but I think that's the point of this we spoke about the capital plan yeah. here and this regional planning framework the point of that is to spread the planning of you know development out towards the regions rather than focus on Dublin so okay let's take some of your text 53106 uh, John in Limerick says Ivan there's always been a gap between the micro and the macro in Ireland the difference with the recent crashes that creamed, in your words, some of the middle class who overborrowed. Thanks for that, John. Neil says, would you lot ever wake up and smell the coffee? I know a retired worker who owns four properties in Dublin and he's getting a pension rise in the next budget. Uh, Not just those in their 50s, Ivan. Those of us in our 40s were badly hit with negative equity and it has impacted every aspect of the whole of my uh, life. My rent in a semi- um, in a semi in Sandford is 60% of, I assume of, of the income I'm in my 50s single parent with two children and do nothing but work to pay my bills no uh, buying clothes nights out holiday really worried about the future in retirement if I ever have one we can't CPO and franchise out our housing as the NRA did with no, uh, motorways the public sector needs to address what the private sector can or won't do and this is the one I like best Bull and spin. By the time I pay my rent and bills, I'm left broke. My panel are uh, right now Seamus Coffey, Derval MacDonald and Fia Kelly. Well, one of the reasons I was most anxious to get you in, Seamus, was that while I was swanning around America, uh, this EU gave a judgment that uh, Apple should pay the Irish government Thirteen billion in corporation tax, and I read that Michael Noonan asked you to write a report on something to do with this, and so I take it that you're an expert. Me thinks, why not just take the thirteen billion and spend it on housing? Well, that sounds, uh, I suppose, incredibly attractive. Thirteen billion is a huge amount of money, and I suppose you have to take it in the overall context of the contribution. Uh, of FDI to the Irish economy and even if Ireland hadn't appealed the judgement like the, the taxpayer themselves Apple have appealed uh, and if and there's Luxembourg. something uh, and if there's something important going on about what is a key plank of mm-hmm. Ireland's uh, economic policy we should be involved and we should be on the sideline so I think being involved in the appeal is the right thing to do uh, why not simply take the money well the overall benefits of FDI are far greater than 13 billion if we just take corporation tax as it is we're collecting 7.5 8 billion per annum uh, in corporation tax and of that about 80% uh, comes into money Multinational, so that's a that's six billion a year. In two years, we're collecting twelve billion uh, in actual corporation tax, and uh, not the result of some judgment from the EU. Uh, and no doubt that being attractive for investment uh, is contributing tax revenue in Ireland. And equally, of the employment, if you just take American companies and what American companies do in Ireland with the hundred thousand or so direct employees they have, they pay uh, those employees about six billion a year 
Uh, if you take what they buy uh, from Irish providers in terms of goods and services, so for example, pharmaceutical companies will be delivery, logistics, they'll be doing catering, quality control, they'll be getting uh, maybe outside manufacturing done. They buy about 3 to 4 billion uh, of goods and services from Irish suppliers. They're paying the US companies 4 billion in corporation tax. And in terms of building, the pharmaceutical companies are building plants, the IT companies are building data centres. They build 2 to 3 billion uh, worth of stuff in the Irish economy every year. You add up that, that's 16, 17 billion every year from US companies. So yes, 13 billion is a huge amount of money. Uh, but I think in the context of what we gain uh, on an annual basis, it's a strategy okay. we've had since the 1950s so, so and it's one that's working. Wh- what was this report you were asked to write? So, so at, at the time the, the Apple judgment was announced, the, the cabinet said they'd undertake a review of the entire corporation tax code. It wasn't necessarily related to the Apple case. In, in looking at the code to see whether it would give preferential treatment for any taxpayers, does Ireland live up to its international obligations in terms of OECD rules? the impact of maybe Ireland's ta- corporation tax code in developing countries, should we make uh, greater efforts when it comes to transparency about the tax that the international or the multinational companies uh, are actually paying? And one element that wasn't subject to the review was the, the, the corporation tax rate, uh, which will remain at 12.5%. The red line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, so, so what happened to that report? Uh, so the report was submitted to government on the 30th of June, so I'd imagine it'll be... Oh, so <laughs> when, when was, it, was it published? It hasn't been published yet. It no. hasn't been published. No. Uh, What's it's that with, it's, with the, it's with the Minister. It's, it's his report to publish, I guess. But I thought we had transparency under Leo and all this I good I, stuff. I hope we do, I put significant so, so work into that report, I hope it sees the light of day. So what's in it? I'm not going to say what's in it. The report has been submitted. It, it's looked at the terms of reference and goes through those key Aren't areas. Are important for ordinary people to know about? Well, I'm sure when the, <laughs> the minister decides, the report will be published. Okay. It's really interesting, because I remember, actually, the day the, the Vestager uh, report came out, the Irish government were brutally, brutally unprepared on that day. Look, I mean, Vestager had... The entire day, right up until I'd say four or five, where she had just mm. absolutely wiped us in terms of coverage. But what was what's going to happen? Well, you see, like he outlined all the arguments why we should keep our, yeah, well, our sweet spot for yeah. CPT and multinet. What, what way is this going to play out? What way is this going to play out? Well, well, if you remember, just basically what the Commission said was that Ireland had broken European state aid rules by uh, what it alleged were two special tax deals it gave to Apple in '91 and in 2007. But it was really interesting because having declared that. Uh, Vestager then suggested that other European countries might be actually able to bail in on our 13 mm. billion euro and that's going to be I think one of the most interesting grounds of appeal when the case um, is appealed which is going to take five years at a minimum. Um, uh, obviously uh, the Irish government is appealing it, Apple um, is joining it and Luxembourg is also supporting it too. The big issue I suppose uh, it's been a bit silly season but there was a report during the week about how they're close to a deal and what happens at 13 billion in the meantime because the Commission has been very keen that Ireland should um, claw back that tax and there was a concern, I don't think it was a very real one, that would Ireland face any liabilities while it was the custodian, while it was minding the money um, for the next five years and they seem to be close to a deal on that, just to ensuring that um, that we don't have to pay up for any of that. But uh, what I find interesting about the whole Apple tax um, ruling was that you know, despite all the hiles on, you know, on the day when people go, oh, 13 billion for health and housing, the Irish people kind of seemed to mm. accept that it was a little bit more nuanced and uh, seemed to, to accept that uh, when it comes to uh, the role of FDI and the Irish economy as a small open economy out in the middle of the Atlantic that people were I think were a bit more nuanced about it. I get that no but tell me this the way this thing with appeals and so on A when will it be decided and will we get a a couple of billion out 
Well, we don't know yet because <laughs> if they succeed in it, um, uh, who knows? But it's going to take at least another five years. So somebody's going to mind the baby. Somebody's going to mind that 13 billion for a wee while while it's all sorted out. But ultimately, it'll be very, very interesting to see how it ultimately turns out. But it's not something we need to worry about in 2017. Okay. Is there another angle to this, which is Trump promising to change? If we're hearing that all these are Americans, that factor. And secondly, you know, we love uh, this Franco-German hegemony and all this. But Macron wants mm. to ch- wants to have the same corporation tax regime in France as Ireland. Ergo, everyone's going to move mm. to France. Why, why be in a peripheral Atlantic island? Mm. Uh, what are the government doing to protect all the good stuff that Seamus spoke about, Fiac? Well, I think uh, on the Trump front, there was a bit of relief in the last fortnight or so that Congress seems to have rebuffed his idea of this huge tax readjustment, a uh, border tax. So the idea that Trump would bring corporation tax in the US down to our level is not probably not going to happen. He might bring it down somewhat to, I don't, I don't know, you know, 20s or, ter- or early to mid-20s or something, but it's not going to be at our level. That threat seems to have receded somewhat. Mm-hmm. On the Macron front, um, I suppose we all, always have jealously guarded our own uh, corporation tax regime and our corporation tax affairs at European Council level. It's been trying to, the French and the Germans have tried to use that as a stick to beat us with for years and years, particularly during the bailout era. Um, I think that they're aware of the danger, but they're preparing for it in a certain extent. And the Macron-Merkel axis, we still haven't seen take full flight because Merkel hasn't had her elections yet. Macron is in somewhat of a difficulty now, so we'll have to just wait and see how that plays out. And his popularity is plummeting as he tries to implement some class of economic reforms in France. So whether he goes after a tax thing, will his political capital still be as high then? And and, and what Europe constantly tries to do is to kind of use the Trojan horse of tax avoidance to introduce what it can't do, um, impose on national governments which is tax harmonisation and that's mm. kind of been a major major dispute um, at a European level Look, I mean our corporation tax rate is one of the you know the the kind of the precious red lines you know that we have all, always asserted but I suppose that hegemony does put further uh, pressure on us but like, I mean it's one of our most important levers love it or not uh, Seamus you, you pointed out 6 billion is the figure we get from these mobile uh, multinationals in terms of annual things and all the indirect things how much of a Trump, do you, uh, how much of a threat do you think either Trump or Macron is to that base? I don't think Trump is, is going to be a significant threat uh, looking at what's happened over the last while. I think his border adjustment tax, taxing products on the way into the US would have been a threat given that huge amounts of pharmaceuticals are made in Ireland uh, and are sold back into the US market. In terms of Macron and the, the moves at the European Commission, like it just highlights the, the sort of the contradictory nature of some of the, the noises we hear emanating from, from, the e, from the EU and particularly the Commission. We have the vestiger judgment on Apple, which suggest that Apple should pay 13 billion additional tax in Ireland because it feels that profit was earned here and we have the Commission's other arm of the Commission arguing for this common consolidated mm. base yeah. that tax shouldn't be paid where it's earned it should be paid where, primarily where the customers are and of course that would suit the large countries the France mm. uh, the Italy's the Spain that have the large markets might necessarily suit Germany because just like us they're also an exporting country so when it comes to the, the common consolidated corporate tax base there's no doubt it's a threat for Ireland mm. if it was to happen all that corporation tax receipts yeah. were counting mm. from foreign companies that would evaporate and it's not just the profit from earning into, the, into France say if you take a, a multinational 
operate in Ireland that sells huge amounts of products into the US you might think we'll get and continue to get the profit uh, the tax and the profit that that company earns no under the proposal the the tax will be allocated on the basis of sales within the EU so if we have a company operate in Ireland and does most of its business with the US its tax and taxing rights will still be allocated on the basis of whatever sales it has in the EU so, you're saying we're so we'll be doing be the work robust we'll be doing the work this. and somebody else will be getting the, the tax taxable income start, that the pra- absolutely like I think that the line at the moment is that we'll engage uh, constructively with the, the scheme and I think that means that when it comes to it uh, we're, we're likely to okay. oppose it and other countries will too it's not just Ireland mm. like the Netherlands Luxembourg mm. Estonia there's lots of countries that have problems with it uh, and at the moment just have a proposal one thing that the I suppose the French would look at from our perspective is, is could we get the jobs out of Ireland could we get the factories out of Ireland mm. that's unlikely to happen because companies have spent billions on some of the plants they have in Ireland but taxable profits can be moved quite quickly uh, and that's where the game has turned OK some of your texts I'm homeless now after being on 90k a year over wow. the recession living in a hostel the res- recession destroyed me um, Ivan, the private sector will only build for profit. The government need to build social housing through tendering projects at a set price and deadline, says Fran. Will any of you not point out the obvious? The reason Ireland is so expensive is because the price of a house. Property is out of control again. Ireland's OECD average is $24,000 by comparison to New Zealand. 24000 The people are poor. Just say it already, says Damien in Cork. And someone, Paul, is attacking Derville. Derville oh, doesn't seem to believe in pre- private property rights as provided by the Constitution. No, I let, do. Let her go live in North Korea to see <laughs> what not having property rights uh, looks like. And um, um, I'm, with, I'm with Jim and Meath. Can we give the heavy Sunday economics a break? We get it Monday to Friday, blah, blah, blah. Health board can't do it and blah, blah, blah. Can we have a full show on Man City's prospects, please? I'm with you, Jim. We'll have Tom. Just before you go, uh, Seamus, um, the Fiscal Advisory Council published the recommendations on advice earlier this year. Will the government ignore it? Have you heard anything from the new Taoiseach uh, or the Minister for Finance that would reassure you that they're listening to you? Are you, are you like the National Housing Agency and all these other bodies, just a toothless line? Uh, I think the, the the sounds and the noises made by the, the new Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure Reform are in the right direction, but I think we'll be judging him more by his actions than, than by his words. But the words up to date have been appropriate. Uh, they are intending to to run a balanced budget next year so if that's achieved we'll be quite happy but we'll judge him by the actions not necessarily the words Can I just say to your caller he's quite distressed by my contribution there that I uh, do the of North course Korean bit was that yeah, that was nice, um, yeah. I do of course believe in private property rights but uh, we also have, to have a public interest and a public good and there is a question of balance and if we are facing into a crisis the scale of which we haven't seen in housing and, and that before perhaps we maybe just need to look it's not a question of not protecting property rights but we just have this belief that they can't be touched at any time my thanks to Derville MacDonald, you heard there, the Biz Group Business Editor at INM, political correspondent at the Irish Times, Fiat Kelly, an economist from UCC, in his ivory tower, but chairman of the Fiscal Advisory Council, Seamus Coffey. My thanks to you one and all. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.